Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Joining me is Rutgers beat writer Alec Krauthamel. Alec, uh, you're at the game last night. We're going to talk some basketball first, then we're going to talk about the Rutgers Ohio State game. Uh, Rutgers unfortunately fell last night in the season opener in Trenton, New Jersey, at one of the more unpleasant uh, arena experiences, I think, for a lot of people that we've had to deal with in recent memory. Uh, let's just kind of talk right off the top. What's your overall feeling, macro-level take on how Rutgers played last night? It was definitely a team that they they hadn't played in. They they played in the two scrimmages, obviously, but they had never played in a real live game environment before it. It was very obvious, and, you know, that was kind of to be expected because there were so many players that, you know, didn't have a set role just yet. So they were kind of rolling with everyone they had. There was a ton of different rotations, a lot of different lineups. Some of them worked really well. Some of them didn't really work at all. Um, but yeah, it was just a team that seemed like they didn't have everyone set in their roles yet, which is fine in the first game of the season. But also that brings to a point of maybe don't play this game, the first game of the season when you're going against yeah. a team that, yeah, they lost some pieces from a team that made the Sweet 16. But you look at Mitch Henderson, he's a damn good coach. And this team is extremely, yep. I don't want to say system-oriented because I feel like that kind of is like a, a, a slight at them. It's, it's not. They're, an, they're still an insanely good team. They're a well-oiled machine. So that's kind of what my problem is, is like this game probably shouldn't have been the season opener. Maybe play it you know, a little farther down the line. But yeah, it was, it was a team that obviously hadn't played together in their current roles before, and it definitely showed on the court. Yeah, um, if you just look at the box score, Princeton basically went with like five guys almost the entire game. I think they had their starters, every single one of their starters played 28 minutes or more. Their bench guys, they had five guys come off the bench, three of them played nine minutes, two of them played two minutes each. This was a team, like you said, that had been to a Sweet 16 last year. They brought back, I believe, six of the eight rotation guys from that. Obviously, they lost their two best players, but this is still a very experienced team, very confident team, a team that from everything I, I'm hearing, this was like one of the more important games that a lot of these guys felt they would ever play, even comparing it to like last year's tournament run. Because a lot of these guys are from Jersey. A lot of these guys know that, you know, they might not never get they might not ever get to play Rutgers again. So they really laid it all out on the line. <clears throat> and I do think there was a lot of awkwardness with Rutgers last night. It felt like a team, I've said this to a few people now, it felt like a team that was playing together for the first time. Um, there was a lot of like, you could tell that there wasn't like a clearly defined hierarchy of who should get shots of, you know, who is like the, the alpha players. I I feel like they didn't really go to cliff enough in the post. We had a huge size advantage over them. I think the tallest player is six foot seven. You know, we've got three or four guys taller than that. I feel like we just didn't use that physicality and size advantage to our benefit, which, um, you know, we just, I feel like we just didn't really we got out coached, I guess is the easiest way to say that. Um, 
we did play a much deeper rotation and that was kind of expected. Uh, was the way the minutes actually played themselves out surprising to you? I would say yes. Um, what I wasn't very surprised about was how many guys played and for how long they played. Gavin Griffiths was the guy that played the least amount of minutes and he played 14 minutes. But just the way that it shook out, I was very surprised by. Uh, we saw a lot of Austin Williams, which I thought was good. He was okay. Um, you know, had some good plays, some not so good plays. Um, he had that really surprising three pointer that I, when that went up, I, I did not have a lot of confidence, but he, he made that. Uh, he's just, yeah, that was he's just no, 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 shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's the experienced guy in his seventh year. Um, Jermichael Davis played a lot down the stretch. He was in that final lineup. I was very surprised by that. Uh, and then, you know, Derek Simpson, not on the court. He <laughs> really did not look like he took that leap from his freshman to his sophomore year. He struggled a lot. Um, we also saw, you know, a lot of, you know, Cliff and a uh, Cliff and Antoine Wolfolk on the floor at the same time. And I thought, I thought that actually worked really well. We even saw Cliff throw an alley-oop to Wolf, which mm. I brought like almost tears to my eyes because, oh my goodness, we're seeing Wolf and Cliff on the floor at the same time. So I thought that worked really well, but some of the rotations yep. just didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I agree. That was probably the, the highlight of the night was the, cause that wasn't, that was like from, you know, the top of the key, that was a legit alley-oop. Um, Cliff threw a perfect pass up to Wolf. And I know we've been talking about having both of them on the court. We saw that in Portugal when they were playing against uh, some semi-pro teams. Uh, we heard about that at uh, the St. John's scrimmage. But seeing it on the court, it, you could definitely see it working. But at other times when you have teams that are using, you know, that are undersized like Princeton was, we kind of got torn up a little bit as well. Um, I can't believe that Jim Michael Davis played 29 minutes. He led the team in minutes. Uh, he clearly has a lot of speed, but he's not super refined as an offensive player. Um, also, I agree that Derek Simpson, he just – he turned the ball over a lot last night. He only played 18 minutes. I think he had four or five turnovers or just like, I believe it was like two or three possessions in a row at one point where he would just like dribble off his own foot or like he, you know, dribbled it too high and it went out of bounds. Like there's a lot of stuff that needs to get cleaned up on this team, both offensively and defensively. I thought the defensive stuff was honestly more, uh, more concerning to me than offensive stuff because the offensive stuff we always expect with a Steve Peichel led team to kind of round into form later in the season. But the defensive stuff, you really could see that we are not nearly as lengthy as we used to be. Like there was a lot of guys getting to, to driving lanes that normally aren't there. A lot of passes across the, the key that typically are swatted away. Is that something that you noticed as well? Yeah, it just felt like defensively there was just a little bit of something missing. And obviously, you know, when you're down, Caleb McConnell, Paul Mulcahy, even Milwaukee Mag, that's going to happen. But there were a couple of other things that was just pretty much, I, I would say, inexcusable. Like, you know, down the stretch with about five, four or five minutes to go, you know, you get it to, I think it was after, I think it was after the Austin Williams three where they got it to within two at, I think it was 57, 55. All of a sudden, Xavier Lee gets across in transition. Nobody picks up the ball handler. He goes coast to coast and puts it yep. in. And then on the next possession, he gets past the man and just puts it in again. So it was just they could not consistently get into a rhythm on offense or on defense. Uh, and obviously, Princeton took advantage of that. You know, Matalaco had uh, had a, had a huge game. Uh, he was he had twenty one points. He he owned the night pretty much, um, and he. I, I, that he kind of sealed the game too when it was under two minutes to go and the shot clock was winding down. He 
put up a fade away from the free throw line over Oscar's hands and he just drilled it. And that was when it was like, all right, this, this one's, it, this one's almost over. Yep. Yeah. They, I mean, honestly, last night, Princeton probably had the three best players on the court in Alaco Lee and, and Pierce. Uh, they just seemed like they wanted it more. And I know that's like a cliche thing to say, but you know, how many times did, they get a second shot opportunity and offensive rebound. They ripped away from, from our guys. Like we weren't really crashing the boards. Like you got a guy like Caden Pierce. He had 15 rebounds last night. He's only six, seven. Like he's not the tallest guy in the world. Then you have a guy like Matt Alaco also gets nine rebounds. He's only six, four. Like when you see these kind of gaudy rebounding numbers, and then you look at our guys, you know, you have Cliff with seven rebounds. Uh, Andre Hyatt had six. Michael Davis had seven. And I think that's like a big part of his game is just, you know, being that, super aggressive, super high effort guy. But I feel like there wasn't really a ton of, you know, I don't know, a ton of, you know, high effort plays from Rutgers last night. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I I do think that Jamichael Davis's role when things start to shake out a little bit is going to be that guy that just brings the chaos, you know, being aggressive on both sides of the court. Uh, he definitely showed it last night. Also on offense, if we're going back to that, he, he had a lot of shots that I thought, I don't know. I don't know if they were ill-advised, but you know there are a lot of shots that it's like he's the guy that's stepping up to take the shot, which is good, but also not so good because he shot two for ten. So it's kind of like yep. the give or take. And yeah, I mean, it, it definitely felt like it. You know, there were guys diving on the floor, of course, for Rutgers. They're always going to have some effort plays, but it felt like the synergy wasn't really there to have a collective effort uh, at trying to just out tough Princeton and. That's and Princeton took advantage of that because that's a this is that's a team that I said before is in, extremely well coached. They brought back I think pretty much everyone on their staff. Uh, Brett McConnell's the big name that's still there. Obviously, Mitch Henderson's still there, and they just play really well together. And yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, Rutgers had a big size advantage, but it definitely did not look like it. And on that first stretch, when you know they went on that, I believe it was a thirteen to two run out of the gate, they had five offensive rebounds. That just can't happen. Yeah, and. Offensively for Rutgers, there was a lot of talk this offseason of two big changes, well, three big changes if you're including rotations. But we're going to play with more tempo and play in transition more, and we're going to shoot more threes. So I feel like they did play with more tempo, and they tried to get into transition until you you hit like the, the three-point line. And there were so many times where you know they didn't even try and cut or slash to, towards the basket and even have the opportunity for a kick out if the, the secondary defender sucked in or just – go for the take if, you know, it's a one-on-one situation. They just kind of, like, stalled it. I don't feel like they're comfortable in real game action right now with that transition-style offense. Um, and they only shot 14 threes on the game. They went four for their 14. Princeton shot up 20, and they hit nine. I feel like they just – they still are learning how Peichel wants this offense to be played because even though there are six newcomers to the, to the roster, it's still ma- the majority of the players are returning in a system – you know, pretty ingrained for the last few years. So I don't know. What's your vibe on how comfortable they are with the, the, the tempo style and, and the, the, the high percentage outside shooting? Yeah, I, I do think they're still kind of learning. There were a lot of, you know, transition opportunities where they just kind of Princeton was starting to get back on defense, but there just wasn't a, like, there wasn't an extra pass. And you know, that's something that they definitely have to work on is, you know, getting out when they get out, when they do get out in transition, you got to, find someone with the extra pass and get into a good spot to receive that pass to try to get an open layup. It just felt like there wasn't a ton of that. Um, And then for the three point shooting. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it was that 
you know, people, uh, we talked about this before. It just feels like a lot of guys don't really know their roles yet. So I don't, I don't say, I don't, I don't think that people were scared to take that, you know, big shot from three. It's just that they were still trying to work things out offensively and it just didn't come with that. Uh, well, although one, one guy that I, I was very impressed with that, that we haven't talked about yet was, was uh, Oscar Palmquist. He had a great game offensively and defensively. Yeah, yep. I, he had the high, he had the highest offensive rating on the team. Um, and, you know, he played well in defense um, and, you know, he made a couple big shots uh, from the outside as well. So I was very impressed with him. It, it seems like he's going to play a lot of minutes this year. He's going to be an important piece to this team, um, which, I mean, this time a year ago, you know, I don't think we would have said, but, you know, if he can be there, then that'll be a, that'll be a big boost, especially because he can shoot so well from the outside. And I said this before, he, he looks much improved as a team defender as well. Even on the one-on-one, he looked pretty strong going up against some other guys that you know ha- were a little bit smaller than him, too. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, you know, Oscar Palmquist, he's probably made the biggest leap as a player in the last 12 months. Like, he went from literally a guy that was totally written off, totally cast off, and now he might be one of our um, – he might be a starter this season based on how things went last night. And I know we're a little bit living in the moment right now, but I agree. I thought he was probably – the most impressive player on Rutgers last night, arguably overall. Um, I, I, I know we talked about this beforehand, but we have six new players, but the, the Achilles heel of Rutgers seems to still be there where we miss basically half our shots around the rim. Last night we missed 17 shots at the rim, dunks and layups. I just, when you, especially when you look at the insane degree of difficulty that Princeton was hitting shots at the rim at, at points, like they hit probably four or five circus shots around the rim where we had good defense. They just had, you know, they're just good at hitting shots around the rim. I don't know how to fix this problem, but it's persisting and I hope it gets fixed this season, but it's so frustrating to watch guys miss putbacks, especially when you have such a huge size advantage over this team. Yeah, it was very frustrating. And you could tell that the fans were starting to get really frustrated as the game went on. With every every miss at the rim, it was like, you know, the, the groans got even louder. I mean, looking at some of the individual numbers, J. Michael Davis, two for five. Uh, Cliff Amori, three for six. Uh, Austin Williams, two for four. There was one layup that he had where he beat his man, got to the rim, and just completely left it short off the front of the rim. He had a wide-open finger roll layup, and he just left it short. That, I mean, you just can't really do that. Uh, Antoine Wolfolk was the bright spot five for six around yep. the rim. That's where all of his shots came from. Um, and, you know, yeah, it was, it was just really frustrating to see because this was a problem last year, especially in the non-conference. And it's a pro- it's already – it was a problem again last night. And I – honestly, I don't really know what the fix to the problem is. It's I don't want to say it's as simple as just make them, but it really is just as simple as make your layups. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 like the check down pass in football. Like you have to, you just have to hit it. You can't really like coach it any more than that. It's just the guy's five yards away. He's there. You have to hit him. That's it. You're two, you're foot away from the basket. You have to make it. You got your defender is three inches shorter than you. You should be able to over. You should be able to get over him. It's oh, man, very frustrating. I don't think the you know the sky is falling. Personally, I know we're incredibly uh, negative right now. This is one of the tougher – this is probably the second or third toughest game they'll play in the non-conference. It's unfortunate it's coming opening day. Uh, we can now see why Pike has avoided games like this early in the season because he like. I mean, we've seen it ourselves with some of the upsets we've seen for Rutgers the last few years. 
you know, you talk about Lafayette, some of the scares that we've had early in the season. It seems like they're just, you know, you got to work out the the kinks and it's easier to work out the kinks when you're winning and playing easy opponents than playing actual legit teams. Um, do you think Pike will schedule uh, Princeton first game of the season again in the future? I would say not first, but it seems like he's willing to, you know, try to have this game again. What I think is going to happen is I think from here on in the next two years is going to be home and home because I don't know the vibe for both teams about like, you know, having it at, at the cure auto insurance arena in Trenton, but I didn't like it. And I'm sure I was reading the boards after the game. Oh the fans did not like it either. And yeah, I, oh, I texted you last night. I have about three different rants lined up and it was, it was not good. I'll say that it, it was really <laughs> bad. Yeah. So for those of you who went to the game, uh, condolences, because if you got, if you got into Trenton after six o'clock, you were sitting in about an hour's worth of traffic. Um, I've heard horror story after horror story, people pulling in and just circling the arena for an hour. I got there and I think I must've just been like barely under the, uh, I'm going to wait forever, uh, line because there was basically no parking in that lot one left. When I got there, I had to park in literally the very last row. I walk out and it's just totally gridlocked every single street around the stadium. And the arena itself is, it's clearly not a basketball first arena. It looks like primarily for minor league hockey. Um, the sight lines weren't bad, but it's just, everything just felt like small time about that. I'd much rather go to Jadwin, honestly, like Jadwin's a really nice arena. It's, it's easy to get in and out of that area of Princeton. Like it's smaller. So the, the parking situation is not as big of a nightmare, but it's not like, it, it, it's not an environment that's like terrifying. So might as well just do a home and home. I agree. It's better for the net anyway. And we're not getting any of the, the take on this game as it is. This was, this is a Princeton game that they played at Kirata arena. Um, so yeah, just a nightmare. I will never be attending another event at that arena, regardless of what it is, basketball, concert, uh, horse and pony show never again i'm not going back there um yeah you can say the same but... for me <laughs> uh was there anything else about this game that you wanted to hit on before we we transition over to some football talk um yeah i uh i will say uh so a lot of people had the same problem of getting there at the i too late which apparently too late means an hour before tip off um, I had the exact opposite problem. I got there too <laughs> early. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. So um, so I so I was covering for Rivals, as I'm sure you guys already know. Um, and I decided to carpool with uh, Eddie and Dylan, who for who were calling the game for WRSU. And then we also, Ellis came with us from the Daily Targum. So we all go, we leave uh, New Brunswick at about four because we don't know what traffic's going to be like. Um, you know, we don't want to you know, obviously be late because we're covering the game. So we get there at around like five. Um, and then, so the parking was like fine. You know, we got to that lot one. Um, there was like 10 other cars there and, you know, we got there very early. Um, so we go to where the media, where they tell us to go to pick up our credentials and we go to enter. And they said that media credential pickup isn't until six o'clock. Now that's an hour before tip off. And, yeah, exactly. I, I see your yeah. face. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know why. So while we're at the while we're at will call, like asking <laughs> if we can get our credentials, one of the security people came up, came up and she was like, yeah, I just got here and we are not ready yet. So uh, you guys have to wait. 
which made no sense to me. And then we walk over to one of the entrances to the arena and we see that the fans are allowed in at 5.30 for some reason, but we're not allowed in until 6. So we're just really confused. And there was a lot of us that were really confused, not just the four of us. Uh, it really did make no sense. Uh, enough of us complained that they were like, all right, fine, we can see if we can let you in at 5.30, which thankfully they did. Um, and then once we got in the arena, we had to go up to the press box, which the only way to get to the press box, by the way, was through an elevator that, given the arena, uh, is probably not that uh, well-functioning or, or probably pretty old. Um, but you know, the guy working the, the guy working the elevator is really nice. I, I had to go up and down it multiple times. So I, I got to talk to that guy. Nice, really nice guy. Um, and then, you know, the press box, I think Brian Fonseca put it pretty well from his like intro tweet to the game, greetings from the moon, because it was insanely high up. Um, but the sidelines were actually pretty good. <laughs> so I can't complain about that. I had a pretty good view of the court. I, that was fine. Uh, I did notice though, that there was like a, there was like a, a two, there was two scare, staircases on each side of the press box. And I was like, oh, is this like extra boxes or a bathroom or something? I walk up the stairs and I'm on a catwalk. And I clearly, I'm like, clearly I'm not supposed to be here. And I don't feel safe being here. So I immediately got down. <laughs> um, yeah, the only ba- and then the only bathrooms were on the first floor. So I had to go all the way down the elevator again. Um, and then, you know, I went to get, I went to get some food. There was no, usually there's media food, but like, you know, I'm not going to kill a venue if it doesn't have media food because, you know, it is what it is. I got the chicken peats and it did not sit well in my stomach. I only ate two of them. I, I got like chicken fingers. I only ate two of them. Um, yeah, it did not sit well in my stomach. Uh, did not enjoy that. Um, <laughs> let's see what else happened. Oh, the cell reception, on the Wi-Fi was awful. So it did. Oh I, I was God. trying to write my game story. You I was trying to write my there. game story. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was trying to write my game story during halftime. And I kept getting the error message like, you know, you can't edit offline, even though I'm connected to the in-arena Wi-Fi. I had my phone plugged into my computer, so I had like the wired hotspot, but that wasn't working either. So it was just a whole mess of that was really getting on my nerves. I was texting our group chat like I am in a horrible mood. This Wi-Fi is preying on my downfall. Um, so that was really annoying. Um, and then after the game, we go to the post. We go to the post game presser, and it's in this. It's like under the arena in this like cavernous like room, and I don't know if it was a generator or what, but there was something going on in the background like that was being insanely loud. And I, I legit could not use any of the audio that I got from Pykel's presser because there were no mics and because of whatever the heck was going on in there, even without that being on the acoustics were terrible in the room anyways. So yeah. Um, that's my, that's my rant on the cure auto insurance arena experience. Um, I, I did not, I did not happen to enjoy myself at, at that arena last night. <laughs> I agree. Uh, overall, pretty souring experience. The loss opening day, terrible arena. <clears throat> but let's put that behind us. Uh, next game for Rutgers basketball is this Friday against Boston University. Should be a good tune-up game. I think they play Boston University and Bryant uh, as our next two games. And then we have Georgetown on the 15th um, in a bit of a revenge, not revenge type game for Peichel, given how this offseason played out. If you follow the pod, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Ed Cooley is now the head coach at Georgetown, who is largely seen as somebody who might have tampered with one of our former players and convinced them it was a good idea to enter the portal. Um, so excited for the, the opening stretch of this basketball season. And they didn't even get a visit. Uh, they were the guy, it was, it reminds me of like those, you know, 
what's the, the saying? It's like the guy who, uh, the fisherman does, the guy who catches the fish or doesn't always reel it in or something. I don't know. Terrible, terrible, terrible radio here. But um, let's move on to some football. So Rutgers lost this past weekend, 35 to 16 to Ohio State, the number one ranked team in the country, according to the CFP. The line was 18 and a half. And it's shocking how often Vegas is basically dead on with these numbers. Uh, so Rutgers loses by 19. They don't cover, which is uh, a shame for a lot of reasons. But this was not, this wasn't a game that fell out of reach at all. Rutgers was winning nine to seven at halftime. They had to kick three field goals in the second quarter uh, from inside the five yard line of Ohio State. I feel like this is a game that was there for the taking. I don't know. I can't stop thinking about how. I don't know how this game really slipped away. I, I do know how, and we'll talk about it, but I just feel like Rutgers had this game for the taking and they let it go. What's your take on the Ohio State Rutgers game? Yeah, it really does feel like one of those games that just got away, and it definitely feels like a missed opportunity because you know, Ohio State's not going to be with – they're not going to have the struggles that they've had so far this year very often. Um and yeah, kicking those three field goals in the red zone really hurt. Looking at the box score, looking at Jay Patel going three for three in field goals, and then you know those three field goals, his longest was twenty two yards. That definitely hurt. Along they just got to yeah, they just got to fix up that. Uh, they just got to fix up the efficiency in the red zone, and a lot of that also comes from you know some of the quarterback play. Uh, I thought Gavin played pretty well on the ground, um, but you know it just he just didn't have it through the air. He sailed a ton of passes, unfortunately. He had that one on the wheel route to Dremel that on the third down that just completely sailed over him like five yards over his head. Um, and it it was just it was just one of those days through the air. Um, if they had you know, if they had someone if they had someone who was a little bit more accurate, I don't want to say that they win the game, but I don't think it snowballs the way it did. Because I mean, you look at, you know, the third quarter, first drive, you get the ball first. You're you're driving down the field. They've already in, they're already in the red zone, and then you know then there's the pick six, which I mean, call or no call, whatever. That was just a really bad pass. And the play call, I don't have as much of a problem with. A couple of days later, because you know they're really selling out on the run. You have Gavin fake it forwards as a as another QB power, but then you have Manungai's lead blocker fake to fake the block and then go up the seam. If it's a good throw, it's probably a touchdown, but it was obviously not a good throw. So I, that really hurt. In that second quarter, you know, Rutgers outgained Ohio State 149 to 38, including 107 to 19 on the ground. And it's just, it was just one of those missed opportunities. And, you know, it's very encouraging that Rutgers pretty much out physical to Ohio State and they can, they can make up that, that talent gap and they showed it, but now it's just taking the extra step and getting it done. Yeah, I, there, there was two plays in this game that were a 21-point swing. You, you talked about the, the Christian Dremel uh, sideline pass that was sailed you know, five yards over his head when he had five yards of separation from the nearest defender. That was an easy touchdown. And then you had the uh, red zone interception to Kyle Manungai, or when he was attempting a, an RPO to Kyle Manungai, he overthrows him there. Like the thought isn't bad. Like the thought process for Gavin is he, he sees the up, he, he sees that he's running wide open. And so he fakes the run inside and he knows he can't throw a laser because the linebacker's right there and he's going to either deflect it or he's going to intercept it. So he does the right thing and he lofts it over the linebacker's head, but he throws it too far. And 
he almost like gets common on guy's head blown off, honestly, uh, by that linebacker. The linebacker happens to deflect it right into the arms of the DB. It's an unlucky pass, but you put that situation, you put yourself in that situation by missing accuracy wise. And this was, if you watch, I think Brian Fonseca put a cut up. We usually do it, but Richie's currently on vacation. You watch the cut up of that game. If you watch every single throw Gavin made, it is it's 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 easier to see how a game goes when you see them one after another instead of you know waiting maybe four minutes between a passing attempt for Rutgers uh, in the game. It's just miss after miss after miss. He started the game 0 for seven, and like I'd say five of those seven passes were just like total whips. The guys were wide open, and you just totally miss them. This is a problem I feel like at this point is not going to be fixed. Like right now, Gavin has of. All quarterbacks who have 200 dropbacks on the season, he is last in the FBS in terms of actual completion percentage and adjusted completion percentage, which factors in over, which factors in throwaways. It factors in uh, passes that were deflected at the line. Um, it, it factors in drops as well. So he's the only player who has an adjusted percentage, adjusted completion percentage of under 60%. He's also last in throws between 10 and 19 yards, uh, so intermediate passing. He's last in accuracy there. And it doesn't surprise me. It's it's what we see every week. It's these easy passes that 90% of FBS quarterbacks can make that he can't. And sure, he's a great athlete. He's a guy who can pick up chunk yardage on the ground. I know that's something we've been just clamoring for as a fan base, but it, it's not supposed to be at the expense of a passing game. It, it can, it's like, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I feel like we live in these, these you know, binary world sometimes where it's either black or white and no we mostly live in gray in the world so why can't we have a guy who can pick up the free yards on the ground but also hit the wide open guy uh, as a receiver like we should be able to get both it's not i don't feel like we're asking for too much when we ask for that like that's the modern quarterback it's a guy who has the ability like even look at a guy like joe burrow he's not the most mobile guy he's a you know, a statuesque quarterback, but if there is a lane, he's taking it. He's getting that seven yards. If it's third and seven, he's getting that first down. We need a guy. I'm not saying we need a Joe Burrow because that's insane, but we need a guy who would can be pick nice. up those free yards when they're there. It would be nice. And we need to be able to, you know, hit those wide open receivers when they're there. It's not, uh, we're not asking for much. We're just asking for guys who are not the least accurate quarterback in college football. Oh man. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and two reasons why it's also frustrating is one because you know those ten to nineteen yard that's a lot of where this passing game comes from. That's where they really operate is you know in the intermediate over the middle type passes where you know that's how you keep the defense honest. You know you're not taking a bunch of shots down the field, but you're getting chunk yardage through you know just consistently being accurate, which obviously has not been the case. And you know a lot of that is also you know how you know. A lot of that is also how you can you know, move forward as an offense because the running game isn't always going to be there. It was there against Ohio State. It wasn't there in games like Wisconsin or you know Michigan. But getting those chunk yardage, you know, being accurate with those chunk yardage is very important in order to actually move the ball on offense. And the other reason why is because you know you'll see a bunch of these just completely sailed and missed passes. But then you'll see a throw like Gavin had to Jaquay Jackson in the fourth quarter for the touchdown and a complete yes. strike right on the hands. It's just he'll he'll have these games where. He doesn't look to have it accuracy wise, but then he'll he'll have two or three passes that look like already starting to figure it out. But then over the full body of work, there's just not enough of those. So I don't I, I don't know if I would definitively say it can't be fixed. It, you're there's a possibility you're right. It's just 
just got to get some of the, the good ones and make sure, you know, you capitalize on those because there were, there were some other really good throws, you know, Christian Dremel's become the go-to target. He always seems to get open in the slot, just sitting in his own and Gavin can find him. He's really good at using his body to, you know, make those catches as well. So it's just those really good throws, you know, the ones where, you know, you say, wow, that was a great throw even past, you know, Rutgers quarterback standards, which the past 10 years hasn't been terribly high, you know, that's a really great throw. And we just got to have some more of some more of those, you know, the really good throws, like the one to Jaquay Jackson in the end zone, you know, if looking all the way back to Michigan, he threw, he threw that dart to Christian Dremel on the first drive. That was right on the money. So that's the most, the, the other frustrating part is, you know, Gavin's pretty much always throwing those 10 to like 10 to 19 yard passes. You know, his, even though they're not a very high power passing attack, he's consistently near the top at, you know, the average depth of target for his passes. So he's just got to get those going. Um, and I, I can't say for sure whether it can be, if it's, if it's a fixable issue, fixable issue or not, but, it's just frustrating when, you know, you just can't get that going, especially when guys are getting schemed open. It's just a matter of can the quarterback make the throw. Yeah. Yeah, I think on Saturday he was one for 10 or one for eight on passes, 10 plus yards from the line of scrimmage. Can't win that way. Uh, he had just as many completions to the other team uh, from 10 plus yards as he did to our own. The more you were talking about it, the more I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if it's specifically this issue, but he seems very comfortable when he can throw the fastball, when he actually has to, you know, put 90% of his arm strength into a throw. He's typically more accurate. It's when he has to take something off is when the balls typically sail, whether that be, you know, he lofts the ball down the sideline or whether that be, you know, he's trying to throw it over a defender or when he's trying to set up, you know, not a screen, but something, you know, outbreaking to the outside where he can't really fire it in. He has to kind of throw his guy open it's just he struggles a lot with those kind of things. And I, I just don't know how you get comfortable, you know, layering in throws. It's typically like something you either kind of have or you don't. I'm not saying Gavin doesn't have that, but it's like he hasn't shown that he has. He hasn't shown the evidence. So um, I think the rest of the team, though, we talked about, we just talked about Gavin for a while. I thought the rest of the team played fantastic. Like if you look at the offensive output, we outgained Ohio State. This game, uh, was it 361 yards to 328? I, I, you know, as a Rutgers fan, I don't think I ever really expected Rutgers to outgain Ohio State. We had 22 first downs to their 15. We weren't incredibly efficient on third down or fourth down, but, you know, we were moving the ball. We were rushing. I think it was the first time they allowed 200 plus rushing yards all season. Kyle Manungai looked like an absolute dog. I know he had that fumble ruski play, which was, Awesome to see. That's one of the wrinkles that you were hoping to see in this offense. Sports Center top 10 play, perfectly executed. Like there is positives out of the game, and I think they're plentiful. It's just unfortunate that the, the same issues we've had in all big games the last few years are just kind of showing up once again. Um, but I thought there was a lot of positives. So, what were some of the things that really impressed you from Saturday from this team? Yeah, you talked about it. You know, the the um, the the rushing game, the running game was great. Uh, Kyle Manungai looked really good. It, it looked like I was kind of worried because this offense, this defensive line for Ohio State is insanely good, and I was worried that he just wouldn't find the lanes or wasn't able to push through the lanes that he did have. But he looked like you know he looked like I guess prime Kyle Manungai, which is Kyle Manungai this year. He I mean, he's already at I believe nine hundred and three yards rushing on the ground, and there's still three games to go. Um, and the offensive line got a pretty good push. I was surprised. You know, there were definitely some breakdowns and some you know busted plays on the offensive line. But as a whole, the unit has played really well. 
And that's once again without one of their starters for the pretty much since the beginning of the since the Temple game, Needham's been out, and I feel like that's just and you know Pat Flaherty's done a terrific job so far because this is mostly the same unit, and it was not good last year, and now no now it's looking like one of the better units in I don't want to say the conference, but it's definitely looking like a very good Big Ten offensive line, and you know the work that he's done has just been amazing, and we're looking at the defensive side. Marvin Harrison's probably going to be a top five pick in the NFL draft. The, the guy had four catches for 25 yards. Two of them were touchdowns at the goal line. Yes. But he had a, I predicted he was going to go for over a hundred yards, you know, in the pregame. So the fact that they were able to lock him down, they did a lot of, they did a really good job of just, you know, sending a few different guys at him, you know, bracketing uh, Max, I thought had a really good game. You know, he's definitely struggled this season, but I thought, I thought he had a really good bounce back game. Uh, you know, they put longer beam on him a little bit. They even put Eric Rogers on him. For a little bit, he had that pass breakup on third down. Um, so I thought the secondary played really well. Um, now, the and the rest of the defense I thought played really well too. You know, the defensive line was good. Uh, they got they got some push at, at McCord getting pressure on him. I thought they played pretty well in that regard. Um, the running game, you know, Travion Henderson, he's just one of the best uh, players in the country, full stop. That third down in the yep. fourth quarter where he took it 65 yards, that's probably Tyreen Powell's spot. Now, nothing against Daryl yep. Jabom, who was in. He didn't take the best angle on that on when Henderson got the catch on, in the check down. But Tyreen Powell, he's he's such a great linebacker in space that he probably makes that play. And it it's unfortunate that that was where that game kind of – I don't want to say flipped because Ohio State was already winning at that point, but that was when it kind of was like, all right, the dream is over. But, I mean, I thought other than that, the defense played really well. It was their first play of over 40 yards given up all season. Um, so that was a great run there. Uh, I thought they, I, granted, Emeka Ibuka was coming back and he, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's, I'm actually, I'm certain he's not hundred percent right now and they limited him as well. Um, but they just did a really good job of neutralizing their weapons. Um, so I thought the defense played extremely well. It was just a couple of swing plays just kind of set it in motion and it all boils down to, this was a much closer game than the score indicates. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, they held Marvin Harrison to one of his worst games of the season. This is a guy who came into the game, <clears throat> came into the day averaging 111 yards receiving a game. They held him to 25. It was his lowest output since the opening day of the season. You know, he was coming off of five straight 100 plus yard games. This is a legit dude that we held in check. You could just tell though that Travion Henderson was the guy that uh, we really missed Tyreen Powell for because he had over 200 yards of total offense. You know, he's got almost 300 total yards rushing his last two games between Rutgers and uh, Wisconsin. And Ohio State looks like a totally different team with him out there without him playing. He was a guy who was banged up this season. He was banged up last year, too. But just we didn't have an answer for him because any time that we were able to get a little pressure and McCord was able to kind of extend plays, uh, which I was surprised he was able to do as often as he did, given he has that ankle injury. But he was just constantly checking it down to Travion Henderson. Travion Henderson had the most receptions on Ohio State, most receiving yards. Most of those receiving yards, like you said, were on that 65-yard play. But he was constantly picking up those two to three yards that they needed uh, on third down. Just a bummer. Um, this game was there for the taking, but it, I think it ultimately came down to a couple plays. And <clears throat> a lot of our games this season have come down to a couple plays um, that we've lost, at least. Uh, you think Michigan. Maybe Michigan's probably the only one that is truly – you know, it might have seemed we can say that the screen pass for the pick six, you know, turned the game, but I don't think that we were winning that game regardless. But Wisconsin certainly came down to one play. Um, Ohio State came down to two plays. So it, it's very encouraging to see all this growth as a program. 
because these were games that even in year two of Shiano, we were losing these games by 40 points. We haven't had a single blowout this year. I think we lost five games last year by 30 plus. We haven't seen a single one of those this year. We've been competitive into the second half of every single game. There's clearly a huge turnaround in this program. Chiano might win coach of the year, Big Ten coach of the year, and it would be well-deserved. I think they have a really good chance in two of these final three games this year. So the, the opportunity to finish eight and four is still there. Um, starting this weekend with, with Iowa um, and finishing off with Michigan, Maryland, I don't think we beat Penn State, but I do think we play our best game against Penn State probably since 2014 when we uh, lost, I think, 13 to 10. Um, what's your general vibe, general take on how we close out this last quarter of the season? Yeah, like you said, it's definitely there for the taking. I mean, Iowa is kind of a mess right now. Um, so I, I honestly, I don't even know how that game's going to go. It could be, you know, 10-7 like it was on Saturday against Northwestern. I, Assuming that it's going to be very low scoring, the over-under is, once again, for the second week in a row, the lowest in FBS history. I, I think it's still oh 28 gosh. and a half. Um, so... That's, you know, I, I think it'll be a very low-scoring game in that regard. It's definitely there for the taking because Iowa, once again, has no offense. They're down two tight ends. They're down their starting quarterback, but they just can't consistently move the ball. If Rutgers can stop their run game, they have a really good shot to win this game. Um, the biggest key is going to be just don't give them the opportunity to have short fields. Make them earn yep. it every single time down the floor or down the floor, down the field. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, just – you can't give them extra scoring opportunities because I've said this before, the difference between a great, uh, a great defense and I guess for lack of a better term, a really great defense is you not only, you know, keep your opponent from scoring points, you generate your own as well. And that's what Iowa does yep. week in week out. You know, they're really good at, you know, just get, getting a pick six here and there, you know, getting forcing turnovers, creating short fields for their offense. That's how you generate points as a defense. So Rutgers has to keep Iowa from being able to do that. And, a lot of that starts with Gavin Wimsu. I know we talked about him a ton today, but that's what it comes down to is the quarterback. He can't give Iowa more opportunities to put points up on the board because, you know, we saw this last year. Gavin didn't play, granted, but they gave Iowa too many opportunities to put points up on the board with the turnovers, so they can't do that this year. But if they can consistently keep moving the ball on offense, uh, with the run game and, you know, Gavin makes one or two great passes, I think they got a shot here. And Maryland – on the other hand, they are completely falling apart, as always, in November. Um, <laughs> I remember Loxley was one of my, I guess, sleeper picks for Coach of the Year. And I thought, you know, a month into the season, that was looking pretty good. And then it's gone all downhill from there. So I don't really know what they're going to do from here. Talia is looking pretty good. It's just everything else around him is completely falling apart. I don't really know what to expect. I think Rutgers can and I don't want to say should win that game, but it'll be there for them. Um, they just got to keep playing their game. You know, Maryland's just completely blown out Rutgers the last two years. Can't have that happen again. Um, so I I think it's there for them. And like you said, I don't think they'll beat Penn State, but I do think they'll put a scare into Penn State. My worry is that uh, Drew Aller has figured it out because I, I don't I don't know who said this. I uh, I don't know who said this, but it was a couple it was a couple weeks ago after the Indiana game. It feels like Drew Aller as a as you know a young guy in his first year starting had to get that first mistake out of the way, that first interception that he threw against Indiana. And then he feels like, okay, I turns out I can make a mistake and the sky's not going to start falling on me. And all right, I can just play football now, now that I'm not terrified to make that first mistake. So that's my worry that he's going to start figuring it out because he looked really good this weekend. And I think that'll continue. Uh, I think I don't think they're going to beat Michigan, but I think that he'll still play really well. 
So that's my main worry is that Allers really started to figure it out, but that run game has not been as good as it should as it should have been this year. So if Rutgers can stop that and make Aller, you know, throw a couple of mistakes, they've got a shot once again. And it's going to come down to can the offense convert against a really good defense. Yeah, that's something I didn't even think of. But if they play Michigan this week. It could be a huge emotional letdown for them if they do kind of get beat on, which I kind of expect Michigan. I just feel like it's the best team in the country. It'll also be in Rutgers plays at Penn State. It'll be the sixth game, six game in six weeks for them. It'll They're going to be worn down. I don't think they're going to win, like you said, but the opportunity is certainly there. Uh, I do think they beat Iowa this week, though. Iowa has not impressed me at all. They're probably the worst 7-2 team in the last decade, um, for the Power 5 level at least. If you look at kind of what their offense has done uh, recently, it's totally pathetic. I I don't know the exact week that Brian Ferentz was basically told he won't be returning. Uh, but it has to be within the last few weeks. You know, they scored 15 points at Wisconsin. They scored 10 points at home versus Minnesota. They scored 10 points at Wrigley Field last week. If you look at their 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 passing production, they haven't hit 120 yards passing under this Beacon Hill guy who's replaced Cade McNamara. Since Eric All went down, their leading receivers are averaging around like 40 yards a game. I think this is a game that we can shut them down. We have a really good run defense. We're Probably I don't know the exact numbers after this past weekend, but we were top 10 most of the season. Um, I think we can shut down their rushing attack, and they can't throw the ball. This is a game that will be t- there for the taking for Rutgers. As long as we don't shoot ourselves in the foot, I expect to win this weekend in Iowa City. So write that one down. That will be in my prediction this week. I think they win. Um, and I honestly think I think they get to eight, eight wins, personally. I, know, I can sometimes be a homer with these kind of things, but I think they get to eight wins. So I guess we will see. We will have a uh, an episode later in the week with Trent Condon, who was here last year uh, on the pod, to go over Rutgers, Iowa, hear about their season, how things have gone, the turmoil that they're currently dealing with. Um, we'll also have all our staff picks later in the week. We'll also be covering the basketball game this Friday. Are you going to be there for for rivals as well? I know Richie's getting back on Friday, but. Uh, no, actually I will not because I will be in Iowa city for the game on Saturday. Cause oh, I will, you will be the there. Game. Okay. Yeah, I will be there. So we're landing in Chicago on Friday morning and then taking the three and a half hour drive from Chicago to Iowa city. So that should be fun. Have you been there? Or I guess you wouldn't have been there unless it's for basketball, right? But... No, I, I have not been there before. So I'm pretty excited. I'm really excited to see the Kinnick wave though. I think that'll be a really cool thing to actually see in person. Cause we've seen it on TV so many times. So very excited for that. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, the end of the third quarter and prior to the beginning of the fourth quarter, uh, everyone at Kinnick Stadium uh, waves to the Children's Hospital that overlooks the stadium. Uh, all the, I, I believe it's uh, Children's Cancer Center, so all this, the patients are able to watch the game and uh, wave back. So that's a really cool moment. One of the more unique things in college football. Uh, Iowa City, I hear, is a real awesome college town too. So have a have a good time while you're out there. You, you've You've probably been to most uh, college campuses or most Big Ten campuses at this point, right? Let's see. So uh, Rutgers, obviously, Maryland, Penn State, uh, Michigan, Michigan State, Minnesota. Uh, trying to think of other ones. Indiana. Indiana, that's right. Uh, and then I, I this will be Iowa, so this will be my ninth. So crossing off that bucket list. I'm going to Purdue in February for that game at Mackey. I'm extremely excited for that. Nice. Um I think I'm also going to Wisconsin at some point, so I'm I'm making the rounds. Which which has been the most 
uh, enjoyable and which has been the least enjoyable. Not necessarily for the sporting event attached to it, but for the experience of the college town itself. Um, hmm. It's tough because for some of them, we didn't get to spend a lot of time on the actual college town because um, Michigan, um, that, that was a whole disaster uh, with travel-wise. Our flight got canceled the day that we were supposed to fly out, so we had to fly out the day of the game. So we really oh, didn't God. have an opportunity to go at all. And then we had a 6 a.m. flight the next morning after the game. It was, it was a whole mess. Um, Minnesota, I only got to see the campus for a little bit because I, was, I wasn't there for uh, University of Minnesota. I was there for the Big Ten Women's Basketball Tournament at the Target Center. So I was only there at the University of Minnesota for a little bit. Um, Indiana had a pretty nice downtown. Um, we actually, I actually went the night of uh, an Indiana basketball game. So that was really cool to see the campus kind of like lit up like that. Um, and that was the night that Bryce Sensabaugh almost got killed by the, by the, by assembly hall. That was very interesting to see. <laughs> um, East Lansing, again, we were only there for a day, so we didn't really get to explore it as much as I would have liked. Um, I thought Indiana was pretty cool. Um, let's see. Maryland is fine. I haven't been there since high school, actually. So I, I went for the infamous Art Sikowski Maryland game. Uh, did oh, not geez. have a good experience in that regard. <laughs> um, Penn State, I've, it's fine. I've just been there so many times, and I don't like driving out there because it's boring and annoying. But the yep. campus itself is pretty nice, I will say. They have their own college. It's literally College Ave. I think I think that campus is pretty nice. So it's like a mix of it's kind of it's kind of it's a mix of a lot of different things. So I'm excited for for this weekend for Iowa. That should be a lot of fun. So yeah, a lot of a lot of good stuff on the horizon. Absolutely. Uh, basketball season still feel great about football season, obviously. Vibes are high, and uh, I think things will continue to get better. But uh, for me and Alec, thanks for listening. This has been another edition of the podcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.